Welcome to Fear at the Top, powered by the Industry Observer, where we speak to leaders of the entertainment, tech, and media industry to learn about their successes, mistakes, and how they operate at the top of their class. Welcome to Fear at the Top. You're with Luke Gerges for the Industry Observer, and today we are with Jackie Shrule, the CEO of publicly listed Jackstar. Jackie, thank you so much for coming today. Luke, thank you for having me. I know we've been trying to make this happen for some time. <laughs> I have been chasing you for, I think, a year and a half now. Oh, God, I'm sorry, mate. No, no, no. I want you to start by just telling us WTF Jackstar. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's a, that's a lot, isn't it? <laughs> uh, well, I guess if I explain what the product is, it's spelt J-A-X-S-T-A, and that's a play on the album jacket that used to come with the piece of vinyl or, you know, the CD booklet, tape booklet. With the evolution of digital music, we lost all those beautiful credits that used to tell us who did what on a release. And that's criminal to erase people's you know, contribution to music. So the idea was that we'd build the world's first public facing official database of music credits. Sounds easy, I can assure you. It's been one of the hardest things I've ever done in my life. But I'm really proud to say that we are now exactly that. We have over 100 million credits in the database, 30 million individual pages of release recordings, song credits, album credits, etc. And uh, all of our data comes directly from the custodians of the data, so the record labels, publishers and industry associations. And why do they give you that data? There are a couple of reasons. I mean, first and foremost, on a human heart level, they all appreciate and respect that an individual's music credits are critically important to the future success of that individual's career. So there's that. There's also that we are now in a world where data drives decisions. It's 100% the new oil. We are not moving into any kind of a future where poor data is a good thing. So everybody wants the data to be as accurate as humanly possible and we help provide a solution to that. And then also we are one of the first companies that's ever done a rev share when it comes to data back to the partners. So they also generate revenue from the credits. And then that goes back into the cycle, back into the 360 of artist development, albums being produced, records being released to market. So it ends up becoming a nice synergistic relationship. And how does that revenue model work? We have a couple of revenue models. So our first revenue model is JAXTA Pro, which is, if you will, for our industry, it's like a industry professional LinkedIn meets a Bloomberg dashboard bespoke to our industry. So we have a rev share of that back to our data partners. And then our commercial API, which we'll be launching in the first half of 2020, that is a significant rev share to our data partners. And then we'll start rolling out other revenue streams as well. And the API is bought by companies like Spotify and Apple Music? Anybody. So it could be could be Amazon, could be Google, could be YouTube, Facebook, could be any of the fangs really, and you know Spotify and Apple. But anybody that sees a use for the API, uh, where it makes sense that we would on-sell it to them and with, you know, obviously working with our, our important data partners. So obviously securing those API contracts are really key to your revenue growth, I would say. Who are your commercial competitors then? Uh, Look, no one is really doing what we're doing. There are always competitors. There are definitely websites that exist that have extensive databases, but they're crowdsourced mostly and user-generated information. We're the first database of our kind, as far as we are certainly aware, and our partners certainly haven't told us of anything else that exists where we have, you know, really, we have 93% 
of the global music industry's data in our database right now. Mm. And it's deduplicated, it's deep linked, and it's mapped together. So being able to put all of that into a commercial API and on-sell it, it puts us in a pretty unique position. So as far as I'm aware right now, we don't actually have an API competitor that is competing in the lane that we are in, which is deduplicated official music credits. So are you in negotiations with these companies yet? We're a public company, Luke, so I yeah. probably can't answer that question at the moment. Okay. <laughs> if you were in negotiations with these companies, what do you think would be the biggest barriers for them signing up for your service? Again, I, <laughs> you're asking me questions <laughs> I can't answer, mate. <laughs> That's fair enough. So you mentioned that you're public. Yes. Why did you decide to go public as opposed to just raising capital from investors? Well, look, to be fair, we were private for the longest time and 2016 and 2017, oh, actually 2018 wasn't that easy either, but 2016, 2017 were two of the hardest years. A, to raise money uh, and B, you know, I probably, and this is, you know, an entrepreneur's um, journey, I guess, my naivete, I thought that we would be able to sign all the majors in a year and a half. Mm. And it took three and a half years to negotiate with Sony, Universal, Warner and Merlin. You know, on the day that we signed the Grammys in our historic uh, relationship with them, we're the first company they've ever given their data to. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty exciting. It was three years, five months, two days to my first meeting with them. <laughs> I did 16 face-to-face -face meetings and over 2,500 emails swapped between us and them. And they are incredibly supportive, amazing partners, but it just takes time. Mm. And I thought that it would be a much faster journey. And of course, investors want to see results. So our investors have, to be fair, been incredibly patient because the journey has been long, to mm. say the least. So that made it hard to raise money. When you don't have official deals with big, you know, with big companies, it's challenging. So we were offered to do the RTO by one of our major investors that had decided that, you know, everybody that was running that company had been doing it for a very long time. You know, they were getting older and they just didn't want to run a public company anymore. So they're like, well, we'll give you this vehicle and you can do an RTO. Mm. And we had... Sorry, can you just, for those who don't know, can you define RTO? It's called a reverse takeover. So you fold up into... It's interesting. So it's, it is quite fascinating because... The first announcement is that company absorbing you, but mm. then you end up absorbing them and then it becomes your company. Mm. So it's it's quite funny. It's a changing of the guard. So it's a way of taking over all the shares from a company that's already on the stock market. In including their shareholder base. Yep. Exactly. And we had a couple of really significant funds that had invested in us and wanted us to have a pathway to going public. Now, normally you don't go public until you have a track record and... You know, you've had some significant milestones and wins. But in Australia, it's not uncommon for startups to do RTOs so that they can actually have the corporate transparency and corporate governance and prove to the market that they're doing everything as it should be done. And then that gives you the ability to raise money. And it's easier to raise money when you're public than it is when you're private depending on where you are in your journey mm. and where we were in our journey was we didn't have our product to market we hadn't secured the three majors or i like to say the fourth including merlin and you know that was that was problematic for a lot of people 
they got the vision, they could see that we were doing great work, mm. but they wanted those wins. So we started the process. Uh, I was told it wouldn't take very long <laughs> and it wouldn't cost very much money and it would be relatively straightforward. And it took three times as long and was incredibly expensive, but it has been worth it. Yeah, so you mentioned that you have gotten some of these contracts done, and I think Universal was that your first one? No, so we, well, we Grammys was probably the first really big one because that was a yeah. major industry endorsement. Yeah. And then we signed Sony, yeah. and then uh, Universal and Warner, we closed those deals within 72 hours of each other. And then... Party uh, time. It was pretty, it was a very surreal day when we signed, it was, it was a really exciting day, obviously, when we signed Sony, and then, of course, when we signed Universal, but then when Warner, we signed them in the same week, that was just, we were euphoric. And then Merlin, we signed about three, four months after. So was a Sony deal negotiated with, say, Dennis Hanlon here in Australia, or it was done internationally? No, Dennis has been, Dennis and the whole team at Sony have been incredibly supportive. You know, as has Mike Taylor at Universal and Simon Moore at Cobalt and Mariana Annis at ABC. Like, the support we have in the industry is amazing. Nico at Warner. But all of the deals were done with head office, depending on the entity, was either in New York or Los Angeles. Or in the case of Merlin, it was New York and London. Mm. I just imagine Universal probably would have been the hardest to get over the line because their market share is so big. So they have the most data to give up, essentially. No, they were all really tough negotiators and the number of drafts that we did were double digits and it took a really long time to negotiate with everybody and everybody had different, I guess, concerns that they were focusing on. It was an extraordinary experience. It was very thought-provoking and it really made us look long and hard at what our plans and strategies were for the business. But what I will say is that it was a very collaborative experience with all of those companies. We didn't have an issue where it ever felt like it was us against them or them against us. And I would have to credit that to our incredible team. So it was it involved different silos of the industry. Dick Huey, our head of partnerships, Josh Jackson, who's based in London, Nick Babetsky in LA, our CIO, Phil Morgan, was really integrally involved from a technical point of view, Renee Bryant, our CFO. But we have an incredible legal team in America. Adam Ritholtz is like my industry father and John Brill. They, they really helped us get these deals across the line. And it was their relationships and also the relationships that we built with, with these industry um, players that really, really, really helped. And... I imagine, was there any, and you probably won't want to answer this even if it was true, but was there any policy on the run where they challenged you with a question you kind of hadn't thought about and then you sort of had to go, oh, wait, this is the way we're doing it or planning to do it when you hadn't previously thought about it? Was there any of that bluffing? No, 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 no bluffing, just honesty because, you know, there there were systems and processes we hadn't set up yet because we weren't established. So it was all very chicken and egg scenario. We had to get the deals done so that we could ingest the data so we could get the product to market. And then getting the product to market means that we can then build, you know, the systems and processes that they need, say, for reporting. But we didn't have reporting systems set up because we didn't have the data in. We hadn't ingested it. We didn't know how we were going to process it. Obviously, we had, we'd done two betas, so we, hadn't, we had a really good idea but also, too, you, you can ingest 
you know, one label's data and it could take you to do historically, like we're talking millions and millions and millions and millions of albums could take six weeks. And so you then go, okay, it's going to take 10 weeks to ingest that label's data because of their market share. And it took two. Mm. So it's, it's all because it was a lot cleaner data. And we'd had a, we'd had a practice run, you know, with Sony. So by the time we got to universal, it was so much faster. And then by the time we got to Warner, it was faster again. Now Merlin's been a different kettle of fish because all of their labels are individual entities that are a member of Merlin. So ingesting 300 different labels data is, you know, it's, it's a different, uh, a different experience again. And we, you know, we're basically um, siloing them down at the moment and doing, you know, a certain number of labels per week. Crazy how much the database is growing. It's it blows my mind, Luke. <laughs> Do these labels have equity stake as well as the royalty share that they're getting? So yes, so Sony, Universal, Warner, and Merlin all have a, an equity stake in Jackster, and it's important. It's important that they're a part of it. You know, their support and belief in us is critical to our success, and uh, it also shows a commitment and a respect from us to them. Of like, you are our partners. We're working with you. We are building this for the industry, with the industry, and that's critically important. They're obviously hugely competitive amongst each other. Did that cause any issues along the way? I'll tell you something. Obviously, they're competitive because they're they're separate companies, but they also work, in my, my experience, has been that they work together when it comes to data and improving data. I don't know if you've heard of DDEX. It's the digital data exchange that is setting the metadata standards for the music industry. And it's been around, I think this year is their 11th year. We're a very proud member of DDEX, but that is an extraordinary organization. There are two plenaries a year that happen somewhere in the world and different members of DDEX host these events. And it's incredible because there'll be 150 to 200 of the smartest brains in the world from CTOs and CIOs and engineers, all talking about the, the metadata challenges that they have at their individual companies and how we can all work together to create a seamless you know, system that works for everybody. So in that regard, I'd have to say no, they've been, you know, everybody wants to make the data better. Mm. So I guess we're in a u- unique position in that regard. And um, I don't know if all the majors, at least some of the majors, I know Sony sold all their Spotify shares. Have they given any indication to you at what point they would be looking to sell their JAXA shares? Oh, I have absolutely no idea. And yeah. I would assume it's where now share prices, uh, you know, gone 20 times what we started at. I, I really, I wouldn't know, honestly. Never come up in conversation? No, no, no. Because again, you know, Spotify was such a unique case in the sense that it had been running for over a decade. I think it had been 15 years actually mm. since... Daniel had started it in in Sweden and they were a very established company when they listed. So it's a very different uh, scenario to ours where we're we're, we're training wheels state, you know, we're going to graduate to the motorbike soon. (laughs) So I don't envy you at all running a public listed company. It sounds terrifying. (laughs) Don't envy me. It's challenging. (laughs) What is the biggest mistake you made taking a business public? And when you, when you are inevitably going to do it again, I doubt this will be your only time in your life. What are you going to do differently next time? Oh, look, 
I think one of the greatest things we did this year was hire a dedicated general counsel company secretary. And last year we hired the amazing Renee Bryant, who's our chief financial officer. And if I had my way, I probably would have had the two of them with me from the very beginning. But that's not feasible because when you're starting a startup, you can't afford to hire people that good mm. with that much experience. And also, too, you don't have the runs on the board to really be able to attract those type of people to your business. That takes time. So I would say, I mean, look, it was the steepest learning curve of all learning curves. I probably wouldn't have done the AICD, Australian Institute of Company Directors course, at the exact same time we were going through due diligence and listing. It was really important that I did that course, but I probably wouldn't have done it at exactly the same time we were going through the process because it was too much mm. to do at the same time. Yeah, I mean, in terms of my biggest mistake overall, and it doesn't have to do with listing, it's very much for me the times I haven't listened to my instincts, especially on this journey because so much of this I've never done before. So I know when I was listening to the podcast with Leanne D'Souza, she spoke about imposter syndrome. Mm. And it's 100% I've had imposter syndrome for, for most of my career. And, you know, I get over it, through it, and move on to the next thing. But there'll always be a new room that I'm walking into and I'll be like, oh, my gosh, look at all the people in this room. I haven't done that and I haven't done that and I haven't done that. And I find myself with imposter syndrome sinking in. So... Through this journey, I've been very fortunate to be able to pick up the phone to some incredible people, but it doesn't always mean you have to take their advice. And a couple of times, I've had too many people in my ear and they have then, I've pushed my instincts to the right instead of keeping them center and then ended up making a mistake because I've been talked around or talked into making a decision that I actually instinctually knew was wrong. But because of who the people were that were speaking to me, I was like, they must know better than me. So I have to do that. And so now if I really get that instinctual feeling, I do not ignore it. And also now, I guess now that I've got more experience and I've still got a long way to go, but uh, I definitely listen to myself more than I did in the very beginning of the journey. And what happens when it's your board telling you to do something against your instincts? How do you manage that? I've had one instance where I really pushed back and it was the right decision. Mostly. Uh, That's a relief. <laughs> yeah, it was a relief. Because it, if it, I mean, look, our whole company culture, everyone has to put their hand up. If you've made a mistake, you're not going to get fired. Just put your hand up. It's okay. What happened? Tell us what happened. What, how do you think we should solve it? And if they don't have any solutions, go, okay, let's get the brain trust together. Can we do this? Can we do that? Okay, we solved it. All right, lesson learned. Let's not do that again <laughs> mm. because no one's perfect and fantastic failures, if you learn from them, it's no longer a failure. It's a really important lesson and it's a growth opportunity. So our board is so awesome, you know, that, you know, 99.9% of the time when they recommend something, they are so bang on and spot on the money that I and the rest of the management team would be complete and utter morons not to take their advice. But every now and then there is something, there's been, there was one thing in particular where I was like, no, I'm sorry, I don't agree. We have to do X, Y, and Z, and it was the right decision. And ultimately the boards, they supported me in that decision. 
Have you thought about how long you want to be the CEO of Jackstar? So historically, you have... So let's just talk about, you know, in the 70s, 80s and whatever. You had CEOs with a crazy nut jobs who were able to start a company from nothing, take it to an awesome spot, and then eventually the board had to push them out because they're too crazy to run a proper business. But now it almost seems the reverse. CEO founders are almost seen as the secret source. And so they, they ha- you have to keep them around. Yeah. Where do you see your future? Like how, how long do you want to be the CEO of Jaxter for? You know, look, I'll be the CEO, I'll be a significant part of Jaxter for as long as I possibly can. This is, I'm almost seven years into this journey and this is without, without question, mine and Louis' baby. Mm. Um, Louis being? Louis being the beautiful, amazing Louis Schrull, full disclosure, the great love of my life and my husband, but also the co-founder of Jackster and a multi-award winning songwriter record producer. Unbelievable songwriter producer. Thanks, Luke. <laughs> if I say it, it sounds a bit biased. <laughs> but, you know, I'll, I will definitely, look, hand on my heart, there have been times not before going public, but in the lead up to going public and in a couple of those years I mentioned earlier, where I wanted to walk away because it was so hard. Mm. And now, you know, it'd be very challenging to pry me out of my job. But sometimes you have to bring the right people in at the right time to move a company to the next level. So it is also about hiring the best possible people you can. We have a brilliant chief information officer, a brilliant CFO. We have an incredible company secretary and legal counsel. And as the company grows, we'll bring more of those amazing brains into the company. So I do agree that that the founders are often the secret source because, you know, you're, you're championing the cause. You're the captain of the ship. You're really responsible for morale. You're really responsible for the culture of the company. But you're also really responsible for the vision. And ultimately, at the end of the day, I am the product owner. I know this product inside out because I do not stop thinking about it, even when I would like to stop (laughs) thinking about it. So it's 20, I dream about the company most nights. I think about it every single day. I'm writing notes all the time. I don't know what it is about showers, but (laughs) when I'm in the shower, I often have my best ideas. I'm like, you know, I've got to quick get that idea down before it goes down the drain with the water. But, you know, I don't stop thinking about it all the time. And it's, you know, with the exception of, of Louis and my family and friends, it's my reason, it's my purpose in life. So, yeah, I have no intention of going anywhere unless it was the right decision for the business, by which time the idea of living in the south of France, eating enormous amounts of cheese and drinking wine would probably be really appealing. <laughs> So you raised $5 million, I think, when you went public. Is that right? Yes, just over. Uh, I think you were on the record at saying you wanted to raise seven. Yes. How did well, that... Well, what you do is you set a, you set a baseline mm. and then you say that you were prepared to extend up to. Okay. What you can't do is say that you're going to raise three and then raise five. Does that make sense? So what you have to do is you have to set a baseline and then you can extend the baseline. Yeah. But you can't you can't actually go over. So if you set it, you you know, we we were going to raise three, we knew we'd be able to raise five, and then we got an inkling that we could raise seven, so we set the baseline at five, knowing that we could potentially go up to seven. Got it. Okay, cool. So that means then there was no sort of pivot in your growth or investment plans 
falling because that was kind of what you expected anyway. Yeah, exactly. You've got, what, over 20 staff all around the world now? 23 in Sydney. Yeah, 23. I should know that off the top of my head. 23, (laughs) and then we've got our three internationals. So, yeah, it's growing all the time. Is this the first time you've had that many staff underneath you? In the capacity of being the head of the company, yes. If I think about producing music videos and films and Mm. production jobs, no, because you're responsible for every single member of the crew. But in terms of full-time staff, yeah, I mean, I've got staff that have mortgages and children and, you know, we've got one team member who recently got married and is about to have their first baby, which is really exciting. (laughs) So it'll be our second Juxta baby, actually, which is really cool. But, uh, you know, they're... They are our family. They're our people. We don't have a company without them, and they are 1,000% my responsibility, and I take that very seriously. And what's been, at least for me personally, similar background to you, I didn't. I managed a whole bunch of contractors for certain projects, never had a lot of staff, and there was a huge surprise to me how much harder it was to manage staff than it was a bunch of contractors on a one-off project. Oh, preaching to the choir. So can you articulate what is that? difference in challenge and what was the thing that shocked you the most i think i look i i'm the first person to say i obviously in my position i'm traveling a lot i'm going to a lot of meetings and a lot of conferences so a lot of people will say to me personally congratulations on jackster which i always appreciate but the first thing i say is i don't do it in isolation Mm. if i didn't have the team there would be no jackster so they are in terms of priorities it's really the staff and the team followed immediately by the product on any given day. But I guess the thing that I learned pretty quickly was that we needed somebody to ensure the, the culture of the company was on track and was growing and that we had somebody looking after the team because when we were really small and there were only four of us, it was easy for me to manage. Then we went to 11, it got much harder. Then we went to 17. Now we're at 23, 26 people and we'll probably be at 30 before the end of the year and so on and so forth. Everybody's got something going on in their lives. We don't have a single team member that doesn't have something happening. And you've got to manage with heart and be kind. You have to be firm but fair. You can't have people take your your kindness and generosity for granted so that was one of the biggest learnings for me was navigating that because we had some team members that really pushed the envelope which shocked me because I've never been like that myself so I found that challenging but getting an HR manager so we use a company that's external to us and we don't have a full-time HR manager but we do have an HR manager and Tani McWord is in the office often two days a week And she is responsible for everything from our hiring to our cultural documents to managing, you know, the team's one-on-ones and ensuring that people are happy and that they're getting the growth that they want. Now, sometimes that's a challenge for a startup too. You've got lots of young people who are super ambitious and they want to be, you know, already, you know, running a race in the arena. It's like, well, we're not there yet, so Mm -hmm. this is the job. Um, And it, it won't be the other job that you're aiming for for quite some time until we grow. So, yeah, managing people is, it's critical to the business, but it's also super challenging. And on any given day, there can just be stuff going down. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So you have to, you got to make sure that things get, you know, handled and managed appropriately quickly. Mm. 
not letting things linger is very important. So Jackie, the idea of this podcast being called Fear at the Top is not that people instill fear from the top, but that it's <laughs> fucking terrifying at the top. Yes. How do you cope being running a business that's public? Is there, it, does, it, does it make it less scary? Is it less lonely? Yeah, uh, it's not less lonely, it's more lonely. It is, you know, it, there are times, particularly in the first six months, every day felt abjectly terrifying as you're getting your head across corporate governance and, you know, making sure that every, every T is crossed and every I is dotted, not that we've never done that, but when you're public, you know, there are very serious ramifications if you get stuff wrong. So learning to navigate that. Uh, we have incredible lawyers at, at, at Maddox who have looked after us and we had a, a wonderful interim company secretary who helped us through our first sort of 12 months and then we hired great people in-house. So that's definitely helped. But the loneliness is a really big factor. I'm not sure a lot of people would know this, but Louis is based in LA and I'm based in Sydney. So on average, we spend over 60% of the year apart in total, if you look back at oh. the calendar year, and that's really hard. And then add to that being public, I can have conversations with our chair, Brett Cottle, who's like one of the most amazing human beings on the face of the earth, and that's helpful, our company secretary and our CFO, and that's it mm. because we're public. I can't talk about it to my mum. I often can't even talk about it to Louis, who's a co-founder. I can't talk about it to my girlfriends. I can't talk about it to my male best friends. And, you know, when we were private, there were so many things that I could workshop with other friends in business and be like, okay, so I had this situation I have absolutely no idea how to respond to this email. I don't know if I should write an email or should I call them and I could workshop it with mm. whoever it was and we'd be able to step through it. And that gets much, that, that, the ability to be able to do that almost eviscerates, except you've got, I've got like Shelley, Renee and Brett, mm. which is incredible. But there are also things that I have to be careful because, you know, I don't want to demotivate any of those individuals either, so... They're not also not the ones actually having to do it. Like, Very, it is yeah. you. You're the CEO. Yeah. You can bounce ideas off them, but at the end yeah. of the day, it's on you. It is on me. The decisions are mine. It's my signature on the paper. So it's, it's really lonely sometimes, and I find... I find that can be really hard, like really hard. And there are days where I will go home, particularly Friday nights. I am usually by the end of the week completely tapped, like mentally so fatigued, mm. physically pretty shot. And sometimes I'll get home and I will be just like a zombie lying on the sofa, you know, loving the Netflix, but not actually any of it going in mm. because I'm lying there processing the week that was, thinking about the week that's coming, but also too thinking about the next six months, the next 12 months, the next three years, five years, what does it look like in 10 years? So I often overwhelm myself by overthinking things but it's very hard not to overthink things when you don't have a huge amount of people that you can talk to about stuff. Mm. I mean, I can, um, LJ, Linda Jenkinson, who's on our board is great, is amazing. And Jorge um, Nigaglioni, who's on our board is also wonderful. So I have people I can talk to, but it's, it's very different to talking to your partner. And the only reason I say my mum is because my dad died of Alzheimer's six and a half years ago. So I would have spoken to my dad had he been mm. here. So it's, yeah, it's, it is lonely, but I, I, I don't know about you, Luke, but when 
When I ask other CEOs of companies, be they public or private, they often say the same thing to me. Mm. I've, I've often compared being a CEO, it's like you're in a really, you're in the center of a really crowded room, but somehow you're in a fishbowl, so you're not actually able yeah. to interact with anybody else, and you're naked, and everyone's looking in at oh you. Oh my God, yes. And it's like, well, no, there's all these people around I can... Even ask, I can yell through the glass and ask for help and whatever. But at the end of the day, you're the show and you're the one that has to make all the call. And so I think that is how I sort of feel when I feel that loneliness. Like that's that's essentially the picture in my head. (laughs) Yeah, I I would totally 1000% agree with you. I think the best way that I'm learning to navigate it is finding those key people in the music industry and in other industries that I trust that I can phone a friend. Mm. I phone a friend regularly. And it might not be because of concern. It might just be like, hey, have you ever done XYZ in Latin America? Or do you know someone that I could talk to about that? But it's phoning a friend is really important. And I have some key people in the industry that keep me very centered and and grounded and and make me feel secure uh, because I have their friendship. I have their trust, they have my trust, and we're able to have conversations. But being public, again, I have, I always have to be careful what I'm saying. Mm-hmm. So that's it. That, that, that is just a whole other level of disconnect I can't even imagine. Yeah, it, it, it's, 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 I have to say, it's, so we listed, it's, what are we now? We're in September 2019. So we listed on the 28th of December in 2018, and... It's on it. I've not done anything wrong, but I have. It's definitely taken me until now for it to not be a second thought, if that makes sense. Mm. So, previously, throughout the year, before I spoke, I'd be thinking, Can I say that? Can I say that? And now it's just, it's it's my new, new normal. Yeah, yeah. But it is strange. Is there any sort of legal workaround where you can say to your best friends, Hey, I'm not going to. You have to. You, you're not allowed to invest in my stock. You're not allowed to disclose anything. Here's a document, and then I can talk everything I want about. You know, to yeah. So you can it's you can wall cross people. So what yeah. you can do is they have to sign a document, and they uh, it's effectively like a confidentiality agreement. Mm. They're not allowed to trade stock. They get put on a register with us and the ASX mm-hmm. where they can't trade. So you can you can definitely do that. Sounds like a whole thing, though. <laughs> it is it is a whole thing, but sometimes when you need a certain level of advice, you, it has to be done. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And when people care about the business and care about you, they do it without thinking because it's not for gain for them. It's mm. a, okay, yeah, I appreciate you need some help navigating through this. So yeah. do you have people on that register? They come they come and go. So what happens is you can have people be war crossed for a period of time for a set of circumstances. So say we were negotiating a contract with a major entity and we needed to bring somebody into the negotiation to help us and advise, then we would put them on that list. They would sign a confidentiality agreement and it wouldn't be until the contract was announced that they would be able to, and unless there were, you know, other things coming out of the contract that were that could be going for a period of time yeah. post the announcement, but usually that's how it works. Yeah, awesome. Cool. Yeah. So we just came back from Big Sound, and if anything surprised me more is that it feels like 
three quarters of the music industry is investing and dabbling in the stock market for some reason. Oh, really? I had, unfortunately, I missed Fixed Sound this year. Yeah, I just a lot of stock talk over beers, which I've never experienced really? before. Tell us the three to five year JAXA plan and why we <laughs> should all start throwing money at JAXA or the stock market. Well, look, I would say the reason to invest in JAXA first and foremost would be because you believe in our mission, credit where credit's due, uh, to the people that create the music that you love is really important. And the long tail of that is that data is driving decisions. And by having the world's largest, most complete database of music information, that's an extraordinary data farm. I mean, we're talking 100 million individual credits in our database right now, and we get 24-7 feeds from our partners every single day. Our database grows by a minimum of 10,000 new credits from one partner alone. So being at the forefront of having that beautiful data is pretty important. I mean, we're, you've got smart speakers, you've got automation in cars. The way that people are going to be listening to music in the future, probably 68% of the requests will come from the voice because you won't be driving a car with your hands on the wheel and you'll be like, hey, play me um, Etta James at last. Who produced this track create me a playlist of this producer so the fact that data is so incredibly important would definitely be a reason to buy shares but also too because we've just started our journey Luke like we're a baby in so many regards the plans that we have for the company of course being public I can't share with you <laughs> but they're significant you know and we've got we've got a journey ahead of us but it's also very exciting because we have incredible support from our partners. You know, all of them want to see us succeed. All of us are working with us on different projects. So it's, it's. Uh, I feel like the future is very bright. Of course, you know, anything can change at any given time, but it feels, it, it feels good right now. And I'm, I'm definitely humbled by the support that we have from the industry. Jackie, thank you so much for your time today. That is an unbelievable insight. I don't think we'll hear anything like that anywhere else. So we really yeah. appreciate your candor. Thank you. I want you to leave us with two things, yeah. the proudest thing that you've achieved as a CEO to date and the biggest mistake you've made. Oh, proudest thing. Gosh, you know, I'd have to say growing the team because everybody that walks into our office always comments on how good the energy is in the office and what a vibe it is. And, you know, we've, I guess, you know, people come and go a season of reason a lifetime, right? So you have... Um, some people that uh, we, we're about to say goodbye to two of our foundation team in the coming weeks who've been with us for four years but their journey has been so extraordinary and I certainly wouldn't have survived the journey without them so I'd have to say my proudest moment is growing the team and seeing them grow and fly and then soar <laughs> that has been without reservation probably one of my proudest achievements and Biggest mistake has to do with not listening to my instincts. So there was a situation where one of our brokers, we were drafting a media release about something, and one of our brokers was really insistent that I include a line in this draft media release. And I didn't think it was necessary, but this person told me I needed to do it, and four other people in that camp said it absolutely had to be in there. It was my first time in that particular rodeo. So I, I listened to them instead of my instinct and I sent it to the said person who the media release was about and it almost 
completely destroyed that relationship. Wow. And I had to work very hard to earn that person's respect back and and apologise for, for, you know, putting that particular line in the media release and not listening to my instincts. And so that was the biggest lesson and the biggest mistake that I've made that turned into an incredible lesson. So as I mentioned previously in the podcast, I listen to my instincts now. Mm. Like it's really important that I do that because you're going to make mistakes. They're important to your growth. You have to make them, but you've got to learn from them. Mm. That's critical. Jackie, thank you so much. Luke, I actually wanted to say thank you to you because the work that you and your team do for our beloved industry is really, really, really important. And I know that you're an artist and you're a manager and you're doing all of these other things. I'm personally really grateful that you pivoted. So (laughs) thank thank you you for doing all the work that you do for us as an industry. It's really important and it's really appreciated. So thank you. Oh, thank you, Jackie.